Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for this morning. As your word is about to come forth, let it come forth with power. And let this word be cemented deep down in the spirits of your people. That at the end of the day, they shall be doers of your word and not listeners only. In Jesus' most excellent name have we prayed with thanksgiving. Amen. Shall we put our hands together for the Lord? Oh, this clap is very weak. It is 70 year olds and 80 year olds who clap this way. Come on, put your hands together and give the Lord a clap offering. And if your voice is yours, add a mighty shout of praise. A shout of praise. Hallelujah. We thank God for our final year medical students who have finished school. Give the Lord a clap and a shout for their victory. Oh, this shout is too weak now. A better shout will do. <laughs> Hallelujah. You can see some of them are wearing white. I was expecting all of them to wear white. This why even if you don't have white, you can wear your lap coat and come. Your lap coat is white. <laughs> Hallelujah. But we thank God for your lives. Shall we take our seats? Today's service is, is for you. Amen. It's for you. We bless God for today and uh, we thank him for his word. How many of you are excited about the word of God? How many of you are excited? Yeah, it's good to hear the word of God. It's good to listen to the word of God. And this month is a month of spiritual growth. And uh, I've been dealing with a series on spiritual growth. And I started on the issue of the word. And we're already in the middle of the, of, the, of the month. And I've not exhausted the issue of the word. Amen. But as I keep saying, this is our church. We are not going anywhere. So even if we finish in October, it's still our church. Amen. We are not running away anywhere. So I'm still on the issue of the word. Because when it comes to spiritual growth, the word is central. The word is key. The Bible says, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word of God. So the word of God is key. So we'll exhaust the issue of the word before we go into what I call choices. Everybody say choices. Because choices, the choices you make can determine whether you grow in the Lord or not. And when it comes to choices, that is when I'll talk about things like the Christian in the contemporary world, the Christian in music, the Christian in fashion, the Christian in social media, the Christian in alcohol, those things, you know, we'll get into that when we start talking about choices. But today I want to continue with the issue of the word. Everybody say the word. I've established certain facts already. And on Wednesday, I taught certain things. Yes. Uh, a lot of you were not around. I taught certain things. But I believe those things are so important that I need to re-emphasize some of them. Amen. So with the permission of those who were here on Wednesday, for you it's revision. Amen. It is a consolidation of what was taught on Wednesday because I spent a lot of time on the subject of doctrine because we are in dangerous times when people are spewing out all sorts of things in the name of revelation and we need to understand and know how to test doctrine how we will test doctrine and i gave them some five steps that you use to test doctrine and i want to go over these five steps because 
I believe it's very important for us to be able to test doctrine and to know whether it's from God or not. The Bible says we shouldn't be thrown about by every wind of doctrine. We must grow so that we will not be thrown about by every wind of doctrine. And when it comes to doctrine, there are so many things that have been put out there. So the question is, what is the meaning of doctrine? Doctrine simply means teaching. Everybody say teaching. Doctrine also means instruction. Everybody say instruction. So somebody decided to coin a nice definition for doctrine. And he said, doctrine is the body of beliefs, principles, and teachings foundational to the Christian faith. I'll take it again. The body of beliefs, principles, and teachings fundamental to the Christian faith. So that is doctrine. So in simple terms, doctrine is teaching. Teaching is instruction. So instruction is doctrine. Amen. And it is very, doctrine is very key. Teachings are very key. That is why in the Bible, the Bible, the, the, the Lord says, not many of you should be teachers. Because those of you who decide to teach the word, you shall receive the stricter judgment. So those of us who have decided that we will teach the word, our line when it comes to the judgment day is different. We'll stand in the teacher's line. And the criteria for our judgment is going to be stricter. Amen. Because what you teach will determine how people live. And how people live will determine what goes on during their judgment. So there is a lot of responsibility on us as teachers of the word, as preachers of the word, to teach the right thing. And it is the responsibility of the believer to know how to see between sound doctrine and then false doctrine. The word sound also means healthy. So you need to be able to distinguish between healthy doctrine and doctrine that does not help you. Amen. That is why this morning I'm going to take my time to go through the five steps of testing doctrine. Now, the first test of doctrine, first test of doctrine is the test of origin. Everybody say the test of origin. So you ask yourself, does this doctrine originate from God or has it been fabricated by someone or something? Now, there are different sources of doctrine. You can have doctrine or teaching that comes from God. Let's read Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 12. Galatians chapter 1, 11 to 12. Let's see what Paul says there as the origin of the things that he teaches. So I'm showing you the different origins of teachings, different origins of doctrine. Galatians chapter 1, 11 to 12. He said, but I, certify, but I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. And next. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul was stating confidently and categorically that as for him, the things that he has been teaching are not doctrines of men, but was from Jesus Christ himself. So it means one of the sources of doctrine is God. And in fact, God should be the only source of doctrine. But then we have other sources of doctrine. Colossians chapter 2, 21 to 22. Colossians chapter 2, verses 21 to 22. 
It says, touch not, taste not, handle not. These are like, you know, sometimes there are certain rules. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. But the question is, are they founded in scripture? So the next verse says, which are, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. You see, that means you can have doctrines that originate from the minds of men. Enticing words of man's wisdom. Where we like to use logic to determine things. But in Christianity and in the things of the spirit, it's not all the time that logic works. Amen. And I gave you an interesting example on Wednesday. That the female for Daniel is Daniela. The female for Emmanuel is Emmanuela. The female for Manuel is Manuela. So, by logic, what should be the female for Ebola? But Ebola is a sickness. And you can't name your daughter Ebola. <laughs> Hallelujah. So, even in the natural, it's not every time that logic works. But sometimes, we try to use our human minds to create teachings and to create doctrines. So, Paul is talking about doctrines of men. Let's see First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. When I preach, you realize that I use a lot of scriptures because I want you to see the thing for yourself so that you know that I'm not manufacturing the things I'm teaching. Hallelujah. That's why one of my priorities when we were coming to set up this place was that we must put a projector here so that when we are projecting the scriptures, everybody is reading and seeing for themselves. Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, how many of you agree that we are in the latter times? Yeah, we are in the latter times. We are closer to the end than Peter and Paul. But they were talking about the latter times as if, as if it was going to happen tomorrow. But we will behave as if we are going to stay here forever. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of what? Devils. Other translations talk about doctrines of demons. So we've seen three sources of doctrine. God, man, and then devils. But the only doctrine we must accept and live by is doctrine that comes from God. So the first test of origin is for you to ask yourself, does this doctrine originate from God or has it been fabricated by someone or something else? Sometimes in some churches, certain doctrines are fabricated to solve problems within the church. Maybe they have a particular peculiar problem and certain doctrines are fabricated. I don't want to give specific, specific examples, but it's just meant to solve a certain problem in the church. So we have doctrines that are the creations of men and then we have doctrines from demons, evil spirits. When I did a series on casting down imaginations, I told you that Satan speaks into our minds through suggestions. So people are there and Satan puts suggestions into their minds. He puts ideas into their minds and they teach these things as as if it is the word of God. I gave them an example of a doctrine, a very interesting doctrine somebody brought up. That is the fact that I saw a book and the book said, the title of the book was The Revelation of the Century. So me, I was very interested. I said, hey, Revelation of the Century. Charlie, let me also go and see what Revi is inside this book. I opened the book I read and it was from this Korean pastor. Not the one that you know. Not Yonggi Cho. Anytime I mention Korean pastor, first person you think is Yonggi. It's not Yonggi Cho. 
a Korean pastor who said he had a revelation about the sin that Adam and Eve committed. He said the sin that Adam and Eve committed was actually sexual intercourse. He said when they said they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, it was a figurative way of saying that Adam slept with Eve. It was sexual intercourse. And that when the Bible said Satan tempted or the serpent tempted Eve first, it means Satan slept with Eve first. So Cain was the son of Satan. That was why he was wicked. You see doctrines, of, it is a combination of doctrines of men and demons. So that was why Cain was wicked and he was the first man to shed blood because he had the nature of Satan in him. So after Satan slept with Eve, then Adam also slept with Eve and God got angry. But you see, if you know the word and you subject yourself to scrutiny, you won't waste time writing such things, let alone let it go through the press to be printed and multiplied for it to be distributed around the world for me here in Ghana to see and to get to read. Because these same two people you are accusing that they went and had sexual intercourse and that was the reason God was angry with them. When God created them, he gave them an assignment. Increase and multiply. How were they going to increase and multiply? And as I said, binary fishing. Adam device, two, 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 like that. Then they are multiplying going like that. It's just a matter of scrutinizing the scriptures and you know that this is not a correct doctrine. Hallelujah. So we have doctrines from God, doctrines from men, and then doctrines from demons. So the first test is, is this from God? But the question is, how do we know the origin of the doctrine? So that takes us to the second step. That is the step the, the test of authority. Somebody say the test of authority. The test, test of authority. So the question you ask yourself is, does this doctrine appeal to the Bible for its authority or does it appeal to another scripture or another mind? Can it be found in the scriptures? Is there a scriptural basis for this? And it's a very key question you must ask yourself anytime you receive any teaching. Is there a scriptural basis for this thing that is being taught? Because as for scriptures or holy books, there are many of them. There are many of them. Some people even preach from poetry. People preach from writings of wise men and things like that. They are not supposed to be binding on us. Because for us as believers, our authority comes from the word of God. Hallelujah. So you ask yourself, can this thing be found in the scriptures? That is why as a believer, you must develop the habit of going back to check whatever you receive from the pulpit. You see, I'm your pastor. I preach to you every Sunday and every Wednesday. But the modern world has it such that you don't only have one source where you receive the word. The internet is there. There are television stations. If you go to multi-TV, you see young, young boys who are owning TV stations and stuff like teaching all kinds of things. All of them are speaking into your life. So it's important for me to teach you how to test these things to be sure that you are not being contaminated. Some thorns are not being sown into the seeds, among the seeds that are sown in this place. Because me, trust me, by the grace of God, I will not deceive you. Hallelujah. 
I will speak from the Bible and the Bible alone. Amen. So, is the thing in the Bible, is it from scriptures? We need to have the habit of going back. Even me, when I teach you, go back and check. Go and read the context of what I have told you. To see whether the way I interpreted the scripture, that is how it's supposed to be. Hallelujah. And I'm open for you to come and say, oh, but I thought this, that, 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 that. We are all learning. Hallelujah. So, you must have that attitude of going back to check. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Acts 17, 11. You don't just swallow everything that is said. Especially when the person comes with eloquence. You know, some people, they know how to talk. And they know how to move the crowd. I tell them on Wednesday that sometimes when you are preaching, there's a certain way you start speaking with some monotonous tone. You can be assured that by the time you are in the middle of that particular act, somebody will be on their feet. And normally they fold their hands. Mm. You are speaking to me. Word. Revi. Hey. You ask them, what did the person say? They don't even remember anything. It's just the fact that the person is speaking in a certain way. They believe or they feel they have to respond in a certain way. Acts chapter 17 verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. It was actually referring to the Bereans. The Bereans, right? He said, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. In that they received the word with all readiness of mind. That means that's what the enthusiasm it was there. The enthusiasm that you are supposed to have towards the receiving of the word of God it was there. They were doing the preaching. You are speaking to me. Preach on. Hey, this is a word. This is a revelation. They were doing all of those things with readiness of mind. They were eager to receive the word of God. But then they did something extra. And searched the scriptures, how often? Daily. Whether those things were so. So what they are saying is that you don't, don't come with a skeptical mind, mm, that kind of thing. You receive the word with eagerness. But when you go back, go and check to be sure that the things that have been taught are so. So you listen to a preaching on radio. You watch some preaching on TV. It impresses you. You are excited. But go back to the word and check whether there is a scriptural basis for the thing that is being said. Because sometimes somebody will use the, the word of God. But the question is, is it being interpreted well? Is it being preached in the context in which it's supposed to be preached? Hallelujah. So does this doctrine appeal to the Bible for its authority? Or does it appeal to another scripture or other scriptures or another mind? But you see, two teachers can teach from the word of God. Probably with the same scripture. And they will all be claiming to be teaching on the authority of the Bible. And they are saying two opposite things. So that brings us to the third test. Which is the test of consistency. Somebody say the test of consistency. So what was the first test? Is the test of origin. The second test. And the third test. A test of consistency. I have established to you in the previous sermons. That there is no mistake in the Bible. The Bible is a perfect book. It's a perfect book. If you think there is a mistake, it's because you've probably not understood. Or you've not read the thing, or you've read the thing out of context or something like that. But the Bible is a perfect book. And God will not allow his word to be adulterated. Otherwise, he wouldn't have any moral rights to judge us. Because the standards by which we'll be judged will be coming from the word. And he says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will remain forever. So you must test for consistency in scripture. Somebody has said this. 
is it consistent with other portions of scripture? Because it's very dangerous to create a doctrine just based on one portion of scripture, one verse. Is it consistent with other portions of scripture? Now, let me give you an example. I believe in grace. Grace is a very powerful thing. It's an awesome thing. It's, it's great, you know. But I believe some people teach the message of grace in a way that seems to liberate people into sin rather than liberating them from sin. Hallelujah. It's as if if you come to Christ, it doesn't matter what you do anymore. You can do anything. You can live anyhow. But when I read the scriptures, that kind of posture is not consistent with the rest of scripture. Why? Because we are told that we are supposed to grow into the express image of Christ. You are supposed to gradually become like Christ. That is the aim of Christianity. And one of the hallmarks of Christ is that he was sinless. So that means the more we grow and the more we become like Christ, the more sinless we must become. Hallelujah. So if somebody comes and says that you cannot be more holy than you were made holy the day you became born again, it is not consistent with scripture. What the person is trying to say is that you have been made holy already. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you watch. You are already holy. But the Bible says, having therefore these promises, let us cleanse ourselves of every filthiness of the spirit and of the flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting means that you start from a certain level. You move to another level. You continue to another level. That is what it means to perfect. If you are driving a car, you start. You bash somebody's gate, small. You reverse into a gutter, small, like that. As you are doing it, you are becoming perfect and perfect and perfect like that. Hallelujah. Perfecting holiness. That means you are supposed to get better. It is not an event. It is a process. Just like how people learn to play instruments. I was telling them that me, I judge how good an organist is by how fast they are able to pick my key when I decide to raise the song. If the light is not there or mic is not there and I decide to raise the song. How fast they can. Because me, I sing keys that are not in the manuscript sometimes. Especially when I'm in the spirit like that. My keys are angelic. <laughs> High level angelic keys. You, you have to find. <laughs> so I judge how good you are by how quickly. Some people, when I start the song, they'll be looking for the key. By the time they have gotten it, I finish the song. Others, to the moment I start, you know, they're able to get the key. I say, uh-huh, this person is perfecting. Hallelujah. So, if we are there and we teach as if, oh, it is once, boom, like that. Whatever you do with your body doesn't matter because it is your spirit that has been saved and things like that. It is not consistent with scripture. So, I'm using this as an example of what we mean by the test of consistency. You need to test what is being taught with the rest of scriptures. So, you ask yourself, it is, that, is this doctrine established or refuted by the entirety of scripture? There's no mistake in the Bible, though. If you read something like Psalm 75, verse 6. Give me Psalm 75, verse 6. Sometimes you think there are omissions and stuff like that. Very, very little details that you may think are mistakes is because you've not found an answer to it. Psalm 75, verse 6. It said, For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. There are four cardinal points. Why is it that only three have been mentioned? They are saying promotion cometh not. Neither from the east, from the west, nor from the south. Which one has been left out? 
the north. You think, ah, why? The writer, maybe he didn't know his geography well. He didn't know that there's north, south, east, and west. But he's talking about where promotion does not come from. Give me Isaiah 14, 12. How art thou falling for how art thou falling from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Next. It's talking about Satan when he decided to rebel against God. Next. For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the size of the where? They are describing the position of heaven relative to the earth, the position of heaven. So Psalm 75 verses couldn't have added the north because they're saying promotion cometh not from the east, the west, the south. If they had added the north, it would have been contravention of scripture because promotion comes from the throne room of God. Hallelujah. That is why your promotion is coming from the throne room of God. And there are many examples of that. This is just one of them. There are no mistakes in the Bible. So it is important for us to check for consistency. You don't just take one scripture and then isolate it like that. So that is the third test. The fourth test is that does it promote spiritual growth or maturity? Or it rather promotes retrogression? Does it promote spiritual growth? Sound doctrine or healthy doctrine must help you to become more healthy spiritually. Fifth test. Does it promote godly living? Because when we become, we come into God or we come into Christ, we are expected to live godly lives. Does it promote godly living? So these are five tests. And I'll go over them again. The test of origin, the test of authority, the test of consistency, whether or not it promotes spiritual growth and whether or not it promotes godly living. And there are people who teach doctrines. So it's also important for us to identify certain dangerous teachers. And when I say dangerous teachers, I'm not talking about, I'm not coming to mention names that reverence or so and so or whatever is uh, that one we leave it for God to judge. Hallelujah. But there are types of certain dangerous teachers in the church. And I'm going to show you those six so that when you are listening to something, you know how to guard your heart. The first type of dangerous teacher in the church is the one we call the heretic. Everybody say the heretic. heretic. Say it again, the heretic. heretic. The heretic is the one who adds to the word and takes from it and establishes doctrine that contravene dogma. You see, we're talking about doctrine. But there's also something we call dogma. When we say something is dogmatic, we are talking about the things that are not in doubt in Christianity, the things that are enshrined truths, they are not subject to debate. So those things are dogma. For example, the fact that God is immortal is dogmatic. It is dogma in Christianity. If somebody comes and tells you that if you have faith, you can kill God, the person is not a Christian. You see, when you move away from the things that are dogma, we can't call you a Christian because they are central to our faith. Hallelujah. That is why at doctrinal level, we are allowed to 
sometimes have different opinions. But the things that are dogmatic, the fact that Jesus Christ is God is dogma in Christianity. The moment you go away from it and you say Jesus is one of the prophets or Jesus was just a holy man or Jesus was just something, we can't even call you a Christian. Hallelujah. So the heretics are those who add to the scriptures and they teach doctrines that veer away from the central truths, the central unirrefutable truths about Christianity. So that is the heretic. Then number two, we have the charlatan. Everybody say the charlatan. Who is the charlatan? The charlatan is the one who uses Christianity as a means of personal enrichment. For the heretic, an example is in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read it quickly. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there were false prophets also among those people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord. Denying the Lord that brought them, that brought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. So that is the lot of heretics. They shall be destroyed with a swift destruction. Hallelujah. And so you don't worry. All those who are misbehaving, God will deal with them one by one. So the charlatan is the one who uses Christianity as a means of personal enrichment. First Timothy chapter 6, 3 to 5. First Timothy chapter 6, 3 to 5. So when you see signs like that in somebody, you must avoid the person's ministry as quickly as possible. First Timothy chapter 6, 3 to 5. It says, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome. When it comes to this one, give me NIV. Eh? Paul, his things can be some way. So give me NIV to be easier for us to understand. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching. Next. He is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, and evil suspicions. Next. Those who, when, anytime you go to them, you, your mother, eh, watch her well, oh. Watch her well. When she cooks for you, don't eat it. The things I'm seeing are not good. <laughs> Creating suspicions, bringing strife, unnecessary strife. These are the people you must avoid. And constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means of what? Financial gain. Those are the charlatans. They are looking for your money. You must be careful of them. Number three is the abuser. Say the abuser. He uses his or her position of authority to take advantage of people. Now it's commonplace to hear pastor sleeping with church members. Prophet, people go to consult. He says, come and meet me at the beach. I'll sleep with you. And the demon that is worrying you will not be able to come to your life again. These are abusers. Give me Jude 1.4. Jude 1.4. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago. That means these people, their condemnation has been prophesied a long time ago. So just relax. Their time will pass have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God. You see this grace thing, we've abused it for too long. Change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. These are people who 
who can even use scriptures to justify fornication, use scriptures to justify adultery. And the Bible says we should be careful of such people. Four, the divider. He uses false doctrine to divide or to destroy the church. And number five, the tickler. Everybody say the tickler. The tickler is interested in just exciting people. They know how to put nice words together, but they are saying nothing. They want to say what will make you excited, what will make you happy. Preach the things that you like. And then number six is the speculator. He is the one who is obsessed with novelty. Novelty means new, new things. You know, some people, anytime they preach, they want to bring out something nobody has heard before. I tell people that when you hear something and it is too new, you have to look at it well again. Because the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. It's the same Holy Spirit that Peter had and Paul had that you and I have. Hallelujah. There's nothing new under the sun. Sometimes it's just a change in emphasis, depending on the era in which we are. But there's nothing new under the sun. When you hear something and it sounds too new, you have to sit down and look at it again. I was telling them about somebody, a message I heard, and the person was like, when Jesus prayed for the man who was blind, and the Bible said he prayed for him the first time, and he saw men as trees. And he prayed for him the second time, and now he could see clearly. He said, when Jesus laid hands on him the first time, he saw men as trees, it's actually that he saw a man among trees. So what he saw the first time was actually Adam in the Garden of Eden. So he was seeing the first Adam. And when he had the second dose of the Spirit of God, his eyes were now open so he could see Jesus Christ himself, who is the second Adam. Charlie, Revi, serious. <laughs> and we hear this and say, hey, Charlie, the guy is deep. What is the depth in this one? <laughs> We must be careful of people who want to be spectacular all the time. Always want to be original. And they obsess about matters of triviality. Sometimes matters of triviality, small, small things. And we just hover around the trivial things. I told you when it comes to the level of doctrine, to an extent, we are allowed to differ. Allowed to differ at the level of doctrine. You just have to make sure whatever doctrine you are following... You can justify it with the word of God. Hallelujah. So, six people that about the sin that Adam and Eve committed. He said the sin that Adam and Eve committed was actually sexual intercourse. He said when they said they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, it was a figurative way of saying that Adam slept with Eve. It was sexual intercourse. And that when the Bible said Satan tempted or the serpent tempted Eve first. It means Satan slept with Eve first. So Cain was the son of Satan. That was why he was wicked. You see doctrines. Of, it is a combination of doctrines of men and demons. So that was why Cain was wicked. And he was the first man to shed blood. Because he had the nature of Satan in him. So after Satan slept with Eve. Then Adam also slept with Eve and God got angry. But you see, if you know the word and you subject yourself to scrutiny, you won't waste time writing such things, let alone let it go through the press to be printed and multiplied. 
for it to be distributed around the world for me here in Ghana to see and to get to read. Because these same two people you are accusing that they went and had sexual intercourse and that was the reason God was angry with them. When God created them, he gave them an assignment. Increase and multiply. How were they going to increase and multiply? And as I said, binary fishing. Adam device, two, 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 like that. Then they are multiplying going like that. It's just a matter of scrutinizing the scriptures and you know that this is not a correct doctrine. Hallelujah. So we have doctrines from God, doctrines from men, and then doctrines from demons. So the first test is, is this from God? But the question is, how do we know the origin of the doctrine? So that takes us to the second step. That is the step, the the test of authority. Somebody say the test of authority. The test of authority. So the question you ask yourself is, does this doctrine appeal to the Bible for its authority or does it appeal to another scripture or another mind? Can it be found in the scriptures? Is there a scriptural basis for this? And it's a very key question you must ask yourself anytime you receive any teaching. Is there a scriptural basis for this thing that is being taught? Because as for scriptures or holy books, there are many of them. There are many of them. Some people even preach from poetry. People preach from writings of wise men and things like that. They are not supposed to be binding on us. Because for us as believers, our authority comes from the word of God. Hallelujah. So you ask yourself, can this thing be found in the scriptures? That is why as a believer, you must develop the habit of going back to check whatever you receive from the pulpit. You see, I'm your pastor. I preach to you every Sunday and every Wednesday. But the modern world has it such that you don't only have one source where you receive the word. The internet is there. There are television stations. If you go to multi-TV, you see young, young boys who are owning TV stations and stuff like teaching all kinds of things. All of them are speaking into your life. So it's important for me to teach you how to test these things to be sure that you are not being contaminated. Some thorns are not being sown into the seeds, among the seeds that are sown in this place. Because me, trust me, by the grace of God, I will not deceive you. Hallelujah. I will speak from the Bible and the Bible alone. Amen. So, is the thing in the Bible, is it from scriptures? We need to have the habit of going back. Even me, when I teach you, go back and check. Go and read the context of what I have told you. To see whether the way I interpreted the scripture, that is how it's supposed to be. Hallelujah. And I'm hoping for you to come and say, oh, but I thought this, that, 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 that. We are all learning. Hallelujah. So you must have that attitude of going back to check. Acts chapter 17 verse 11. Acts 17 11. You don't just swallow everything that is said. Especially when the person comes with eloquence. You know, some people, they know how to talk. And they know how to move the crowd. I tell them on Wednesday that sometimes and when you are preaching, there's a certain way you start speaking with some monotonous tone. You can be assured that by the time you are in the middle of that particular act, somebody will be on their feet. And normally they fold their hands. Mm. You are speaking to me. Word. Revi. Hey. You ask them, what did the person say? They don't even remember anything. 
It's just the fact that the person is speaking in a certain way. They believe or they feel they have to respond in a certain way. Acts chapter 17 verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. It was actually referring to the Bereans. The Bereans, right? He said they were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. That means that's what the enthusiasm it was there. The enthusiasm that you are supposed to have towards the receiving of the word of God it was there. They were doing the preaching. You are speaking to me. Preach on. Hey, this is a word. This is a revelation. They were doing all of those things with readiness of mind. They were eager to receive the word of God. But then they did something extra. And searched the scriptures, how often? Daily. Whether those things were so. So what they are saying is that you don't, don't come with a skeptical mind, mm, that kind of thing. You receive the word with eagerness. But when you go back, go and check to be sure that the things that have been taught are so. So you listen to a preaching on radio. You watch some preaching on TV. It impresses you. You are excited. But go back to the word and check whether there is a scriptural basis for the thing that is being said. Because sometimes somebody will use the, the word of God. But the question is, is it being interpreted well? Is it being preached in the context in which it's supposed to be preached? Hallelujah. So does this doctrine appeal to the Bible for its authority? Or does it appeal to another scripture or other scriptures or another mind? But you see, two teachers can teach from the word of God. Probably with the same scripture. And they will all be claiming to be teaching on the authority of the Bible. And they are saying two opposite things. So that brings us to the third test. Which is the test of consistency. Somebody say the test of consistency. So what was the first test? Is the test of origin. The second test. And the third test. A test of consistency. I have established to you in the previous sermons. That there is no mistake in the Bible. The Bible is a perfect book. It's a perfect book. If you think there is a mistake, it's because you've probably not understood. Or you've not read the thing, or you've read the thing out of context or something like that. But the Bible is a perfect book. And God will not allow his word to be adulterated. Otherwise, he wouldn't have any moral right to judge us. Because the standards by which we'll be judged will be coming from the word. And he says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will remain forever. So you must test for consistency in scripture. Somebody has said this. Is it consistent with other portions of scripture? Because it's very dangerous to create a doctrine just based on one portion of scripture, one verse. Is it consistent with other portions of scripture? Now, let me give you an example. I believe in grace. Grace is a very powerful thing. It's an awesome thing. It's, it's great. You know? But I believe some people teach the message of grace in a way that seems to liberate people into sin rather than liberating them from sin. Hallelujah. It's as if if you come to Christ, it doesn't matter what you do anymore. You can do anything. You can live anyhow. But when I read the scriptures, that kind of posture is not consistent with the rest of scripture. Why? Because we are told that we are supposed to grow into the express image of Christ. You are supposed to gradually become like Christ. That is the aim of Christianity. And one of the hallmarks of Christ is that he was sinless. So that means the more we grow and the more we become like Christ, the more sinless we must become. Hallelujah. 
So if somebody comes and says that you cannot be more holy than you were made holy the day you became born again, it is not consistent with scripture. What the person is trying to say is that you have been made holy already. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you watch. You are already holy. But the Bible says, having therefore these promises, let us cleanse ourselves of every filthiness of the spirit and of the flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting means that you start from a certain level. You move to another level. You continue to another level. That is what it means to perfect. If you are driving a car, you start. You bash somebody's gate, small. You reverse into a gutter, small, like that. As you are doing it, you are becoming perfect and perfect and perfect like that. Hallelujah. Perfecting holiness. That means you are supposed to get better. It is not an event. It is a process. Just like how people learn to play instruments. I was telling them that me, I judge how good an organist is by how fast they are able to pick my key when I decide to raise the song. If the light is not there or mic is not there and I decide to raise the song. How fast they can. Because me, I sing keys that are not in the manuscript <laughs> sometimes. Especially when I'm in the spirit like that. My keys are angelic, <laughs> high-level angelic keys. You, you have to find. <laughs> so I judge how good you are by how quickly. Some people, when I start the song, they'll be looking for the key. By the time they have gotten it, I finish the song. Others, to the moment I start, you know, they're able to get the key. I say, uh-huh, this person is perfecting. Hallelujah. So, if we are there and we teach as if, oh, it is once, boom, like that. Whatever you do with your body doesn't matter because it is your spirit that has been saved and things like that. It is not consistent with scripture. So, I'm using this as an example of what we mean by the test of consistency. You need to test what is being taught with the rest of scriptures. So, you ask yourself, it is, that, is this doctrine established or refuted by the entirety of scripture? There's no mistake in the Bible, though. If you read something like Psalm 75, verse 6. Give me Psalm 75, verse 6. Sometimes you think there are omissions and stuff like that. Very, very little details that you may think are mistakes is because you've not found an answer to it. Psalm 75, verse 6. It said, For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. There are four cardinal points. Why is it that only three have been mentioned? They are saying promotion cometh not. Neither from the east, from the west, nor from the south. Which one has been left out? The north. You think, ah, why? The writer, maybe he didn't know his geography well. He didn't know that there's north, south, east, and west. But he's talking about where promotion does not come from. Give me Isaiah 14, 12. How art thou falling for how art thou falling from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Next. It's talking about Satan when he decided to rebel against God. Next. For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the size of the where. They are describing the position of heaven relative to the earth, the position of heaven. So, Psalm 75 verses couldn't have added the north because he's saying promotion cometh not 
from the east, the west, the south. If they had added the north, it would have been contravention of scripture because promotion comes from the throne room of God. Hallelujah. That is why your promotion is coming from the throne room of God. And there are many examples of that. This is just one of them. There are no mistakes in the Bible. So it is important for us to check for consistency. You don't just take one scripture and then isolate it like that. So that is the third test. The fourth test is that does it promote spiritual growth or maturity? Or it rather promotes retrogression? Does it promote spiritual growth? Sound doctrine or healthy doctrine must help you to become more healthy spiritually. Fifth test. Does it promote godly living? Because when we become, we come into God or we come into Christ, we are expected to live godly lives. Does it promote godly living? So these are five tests. And I'll go over them again. The test of origin, the test of authority, the test of consistency, whether or not it promotes spiritual growth and whether or not it promotes godly living. And there are people who teach doctrines. So it's also important for us to identify certain dangerous teachers. And when I say dangerous teachers, I'm not talking about, I'm not coming to mention names that reverence or so and so or whatever is uh, that one, we leave it for God to judge. Hallelujah. But there are types of certain dangerous teachers in the church. And I'm going to show you those six so that when you are listening to something, you know how to guard your heart. The first type of dangerous teacher in the church is the one we call the heretic. Everybody say the heretic. heretic. Say it again, the heretic. The heretic is the one who adds to the word and takes from it and establishes doctrine that contravene dogma. You see, we're talking about doctrine, but there's also something we call dogma. When we say something is dogmatic, we are talking about the things that are not in doubt in Christianity, the things that are enshrined truths, they are not subject to debate. So those things are dogma. For example, the fact that God is immortal is dogmatic. It is dogma in Christianity. If somebody comes and tells you that if you have faith, you can kill God. The person is not a Christian. You see, when you move away from the things that are dogma, we can't call you a Christian because they are central to our faith. Hallelujah. That is why at doctrinal level, we are allowed to sometimes have different opinions but the things that are dogmatic the fact that jesus christ is god is dogma in christianity the moment you go away from it and you say jesus is one of the prophets or jesus was just a holy man or jesus was just something we can't even call you a christian hallelujah so the heretics are those who add to the scriptures and they teach doctrines that veer away from the central truths the central on irrefutable truths about Christianity. So that is the heretic. Then number two, we have the charlatan. Everybody say the charlatan. Who is the charlatan? The charlatan is the one who uses Christianity as a means of personal enrichment. For the heretic, an example is in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read it quickly. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there were false prophets also among those people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord. 
denying the Lord, that brought them, that brought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. So that is the lot of heretics. They shall be destroyed with a swift destruction. Hallelujah. And so you don't worry. All those who are misbehaving, God will deal with them one by one. So the charlatan is the one who uses Christianity as a means of personal enrichment. First Timothy chapter 6, 3 to 5. First Timothy chapter 6, 3 to 5. So when you see signs like that in somebody, you must avoid the person's ministry as quickly as possible. First Timothy chapter 6, 3 to 5. It says, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome. When it comes to this one, give me NIV. Eh? Paul, his things can be some way. So give me NIV to be easier for us to understand. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, next, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, and evil suspicions. Next, those who, when anytime you go to them, you, your mother, eh, watch her well, oh. Watch her well. When she cooks for you, don't eat it. The things I'm seeing are not good. <laughs> Creating suspicions, bringing strife, unnecessary strife. These are the people you must avoid. And constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means of what? Financial gain. Those are the charlatans. They are looking for your money. You must be careful of them. Number three is the abuser. Say the abuser. He uses his or her position of authority to take advantage of people. Now it's commonplace to hear pastor sleeping with church members. Prophets, people go to consults. He says, come and meet me at the beach. I'll sleep with you. And the demon that is worrying you will not be able to come to your life again. These are abusers. Give me Jude 1.4. Jude 1.4. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago. That means these people, their condemnation has been prophesied a long time ago. So just relax. Their time will pass have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God. You see this grace thing, we've abused it for too long. Change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. These are people who, who can even use scriptures to justify fornication, use scriptures to justify adultery. the Bible says we should be careful of such people. Four, the divider. He uses false doctrine to divide or to destroy the church. And number five, the tickler. Everybody say the tickler. The tickler is interested in just exciting people. They know how to put nice words together, but they are saying nothing. They want to say what will make you excited, what will make you happy. Preach the things that you like. And then number six is the speculator. He is the one who is obsessed with novelty. Novelty means new, new things. You know, some people, anytime they preach, they want to bring out something nobody has heard before. I tell people that when you hear something and it is too new, you have to look at it well again. Because the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. It's the same Holy Spirit that Peter had and Paul had that you and I have. Hallelujah. 
There's nothing new under the sun. Sometimes it's just a change in emphasis, depending on the era in which we are, but there's nothing new under the sun. When you hear something and it sounds too new, you have to sit down and look at it again. I was telling them about somebody, a message I heard, and the person was like, when Jesus prayed for the man who was blind, and the Bible said he prayed for him the first time and he saw men as trees. And he prayed for him the second time and now he could see clearly. He said, when Jesus laid hands on him the first time, he saw men as trees, it's actually that he saw a man among trees. So what he saw the first time was actually Adam in the Garden of Eden. So he was seeing the first Adam. And when he had the second dose of the Spirit of God, his eyes were now open so he could see Jesus Christ himself, who is the second Adam. Charlie, Revi, serious. <laughs> and we hear this and say, hey, Charlie, the guy is deep. What is the depth in this one? <laughs> we must be careful of people who want to be spectacular all the time. Always want to be original. And they obsess about matters of triviality. Sometimes matters of triviality, small, small things. And we just hover around the trivial things. I told you when it comes to the level of doctrine, to an extent we are allowed to differ. Allowed to differ at the level of doctrine. You just have to make sure whatever doctrine you are following, you can justify it with the word of God. Hallelujah. So, six people that about the sin that Adam and Eve committed. He said the sin that Adam and Eve committed was actually sexual intercourse. He said when they said they ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, it was a figurative way of saying that Adam slept with Eve. It was sexual intercourse. And that when the Bible said Satan tempted or the serpent tempted Eve first, it means Satan slept with Eve first. So Cain was the son of Satan. That was why he was wicked. You see doctrines, of, it is a combination of doctrines of men and demons. So that was why Cain was wicked and he was the first man to shed blood because he had the nature of Satan in him. So after Satan slept with Eve, then Adam also slept with Eve and God got angry. But you see, if you know the word and you subject yourself to scrutiny, you won't waste time writing such things, let alone let it go through the press to be printed and multiplied for it to be distributed around the world for me here in Ghana to see and to get to read. Because these same two people you are accusing that they went and had sexual intercourse and that was the reason God was angry with them. When God created them, he gave them an assignment. Increase and multiply. How were they going to increase and multiply? And as I said, binary fishing. Adam device, two, 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 like that. Then they are multiplying going like that. It's just a matter of scrutinizing the scriptures and you know that this is not a correct doctrine. Hallelujah. So we have doctrines from God, doctrines from men, and then doctrines from demons. So the first test is, is this from God? But the question is, how do we know the origin of the doctrine? So that takes us to the second step. That is the step the, the test of authority. Somebody say the test of authority. The test, test of authority. So the question you ask yourself is, does this doctrine appeal to the Bible for its authority or does it appeal to another scripture or another mind? 
can it be found in the scriptures? Is there a scriptural basis for this? And it's a very key question you must ask yourself anytime you receive any teaching. Is there a scriptural basis for this thing that is being taught? Because as for scriptures or holy books, there are many of them. There are many of them. Some people even preach from poetry. People preach from writings of wise men and things like that. They are not supposed to be binding on us. Because for us as believers, our authority comes from the word of God. Hallelujah. So you ask yourself, can this thing be found in the scriptures? That is why as a believer, you must develop the habit of going back to check whatever you receive from the pulpit. You see, I'm your pastor. I preach to you every Sunday and every Wednesday. But the modern world has it such that you don't only have one source where you receive the word. The internet is there. There are television stations. If you go to multi-TV, you see young, young boys who are owning TV stations and stuff like teaching all kinds of things. All of them are speaking into your life. So it's important for me to teach you how to test these things to be sure that you are not being contaminated. Some thorns are not being sown into the seeds, among the seeds that are sown in this place. Because me, trust me, by the grace of God, I will not deceive you. Hallelujah. I will speak from the Bible and the Bible alone. Amen. So is the thing in the Bible, is it from scriptures? We need to have the habit of going back. Even me, when I teach you, go back and check. Go and read the context of what I have told you. To see whether the way I interpreted the scripture, that is how it's supposed to be. Hallelujah. And I'm hoping for you to come and say, oh, but I thought this, that, 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 that. We are all learning. Hallelujah. So you must have that attitude of going back to check. Acts chapter 17 verse 11. Acts 17 11. You don't just swallow everything that is said. Especially when the person comes with eloquence. You know, some people, they know how to talk. And they know how to move the crowd. I was telling them on Wednesday that sometimes and when you are preaching, there's a certain way you start speaking with some monotonous tone. You can be assured that by the time you are in the middle of that particular act, somebody will be on their feet. And normally they fold their hands. Mm. You are speaking to me. Word. Revi. Hey. You ask them, what did the person say? They don't even remember anything. It's just the fact that the person is speaking in a certain way. They believe or they feel they have to respond in a certain way. Acts chapter 17 verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. It was actually referring to the Bereans. The Bereans, right? He said, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. That means that's what the enthusiasm it was there. The enthusiasm that you are supposed to have towards the receiving of the word of God, it was there. They were doing the preaching. You are speaking to me. Preach on. Hey, this is a word. This is a revelation. They were doing all of those things with readiness of mind. They were eager to receive the word of God. But then they did something extra and searched the scriptures how often? Daily. Whether those things were so. So what they are saying is that you don't, don't come with a skeptical mind, mm, that kind of thing. You receive the word with eagerness. But when you go back, go and check to be sure that the things that have been taught are so. So you listen to a preaching on radio. You watch some preaching on TV. It impresses you. You are excited. But go back to the word and check whether there is a scriptural basis for the thing that is being said. Because sometimes somebody will use the, the word of God. 
But the question is, is it being interpreted well? Is it being preached in the context in which it's supposed to be preached? Hallelujah. So does this doctrine appeal to the Bible for its authority? Or does it appeal to another scripture or other scriptures or another mind? But you see, two teachers can teach from the word of God, probably with the same scripture. And they will all be claiming to be teaching on the authority of the Bible. And they are saying two opposite things. So that brings us to the third test, which is the test of consistency. Somebody say the test of consistency. So what was the first test? Is the test of origin. The second test. And the third test, a test of consistency. I have established to you in the previous sermons that there is no mistake in the Bible. The Bible is a perfect book. It's a perfect book. If you think there is a mistake, it's because you've probably not understood. Or you've not read the thing, or you've read the thing out of context or something like that. But the Bible is a perfect book. And God will not allow his word to be adulterated. Otherwise, he wouldn't have any moral right to judge us. Because the standards by which we'll be judged will be coming from the word. And he says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will remain forever. So you must test for consistency in scripture. Somebody has said this. Is it consistent with other portions of scripture? Because it's very dangerous to create a doctrine just based on one portion of scripture, one verse. Is it consistent with other portions of scripture? Now, let me give you an example. I believe in grace. Grace is a very powerful thing. It's an awesome thing. It's, it's great. You know? But I believe some people teach the message of grace in a way that seems to liberate people into sin rather than liberating them from sin. Hallelujah. It's as if if you come to Christ, it doesn't matter what you do anymore. You can do anything. You can live anyhow. But when I read the scriptures, that kind of posture is not consistent with the rest of scripture. Why? Because we are told that we are supposed to grow into the express image of Christ. You are supposed to gradually become like Christ. That is the aim of Christianity. And one of the hallmarks of Christ is that he was sinless. So that means the more we grow and the more we become like Christ, the more sinless we must become. Hallelujah. So if somebody comes and says that you cannot be more holy than you were made holy the day you became born again, it is not consistent with scripture. What the person is trying to say is that you have been made holy already. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you say. It doesn't matter what you watch. You are already holy. But the Bible says, having therefore these promises, let us cleanse ourselves of every filthiness of the spirit and of the flesh, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting means that you start from a certain level. You move to another level. You continue to another level. That is what it means to perfect. If you are driving a car, you start. You bash somebody's gate, small. You reverse into a gutter, small, like that. As you are doing it, you are becoming perfect and perfect and perfect like that. Hallelujah. Perfecting holiness. That means you are supposed to get better. It is not an event. It is a process. Just like how people learn to play instruments. I was telling them that me, I judge how good an organist is by how fast they are able to pick my key when I decide to raise the song. If the light is not there or mic is not there and I decide to raise the song. How fast they can. Because me, I sing keys that are not in the manuscript sometimes. Especially when I'm in the spirit like that. My keys are angelic, <laughs> high-level angelic keys. You, you have to find. 
So I judge how good you are by how quickly. Some people, when I start the song, they'll be looking for like you do pin, 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 pin. By the time they have gotten it, I finish the song. Others, to the moment I start, you know, they're able to get the key. I say, uh-huh, this person is perfecting. Hallelujah. So if we are there and we teach as if, oh, it is once, boom, like that. Whatever you do with your body doesn't matter because it is your spirit that has been saved and things like that. It is not consistent with scripture. So I'm using this as an example of what we mean by the test of consistency. You need to test what is being taught with the rest of scriptures. So you ask yourself, it is, that, is this doctrine established or refuted by the entirety of scripture? There's no mistake in the Bible though. If you read something like Psalm 75 verse 6. Give me Psalm 75 verse 6. Sometimes you think there are omissions and stuff like that. Very, very little details that you may think are mistakes. is because you've not found an answer to it. Psalm 75 verse 6. It said, for promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. There are four cardinal points. Why is it that only three have been mentioned? They are saying promotion cometh not. Neither from the east, from the west, nor from the south. Which one has been left out? The north. You think, ah, why? The writer, maybe he didn't know his geography well. He didn't know that there's north, south, east, and west. But he's talking about where promotion does not come from. Give me Isaiah 14, 12. How art thou falling for how art thou falling from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? Next. It's talking about Satan when he decided to rebel against God. Next. For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the size of the where? They are describing the position of heaven relative to the earth, the position of heaven. So Psalm 75 verses couldn't have added the north because they're saying promotion cometh not from the east, the west, the south. If they had added the north, it would have been contravention of scripture because promotion comes from the throne room of God. Hallelujah. That is why your promotion is coming from the throne room of God. And there are many examples of that. This is just one of them. There are no mistakes in the Bible. So it is important for us to check for consistency. You don't just take one scripture and then isolate it like that. So that is the third test. The fourth test is that does it promote spiritual growth or maturity? Or it rather promotes retrogression? Does it promote spiritual growth? Sound doctrine or healthy doctrine must help you to become more healthy spiritually. Fifth test. Does it promote godly living? Because when we become, we come into God or we come into Christ, we are expected to live godly lives. Does it promote godly living? So these are five tests. And I'll go over them again. The test of origin, the test of authority, the test of consistency, whether or not it promotes spiritual growth and whether or not it promotes godly living. And there are people who teach doctrines. So it's also important for us to identify certain dangerous teachers. 
And when I say dangerous teachers, I'm not talking about, I'm not coming to mention names that reverence or so and so or whatever is. Uh, that one, we leave it for God to judge. Hallelujah. But there are types of certain dangerous teachers in the church. And I'm going to show you those six so that when you are listening to something, you know how to guard your heart. The first type of dangerous teacher in the church is the one we call the heretic. Everybody say the heretic. Say it again, the heretic. The heretic is the one who adds to the word and takes from it and establishes doctrine that contravene dogma. You see, we're talking about doctrine. But there's also something we call dogma. When we say something is dogmatic, we are talking about the things that are not in doubt in Christianity. The things that are enshrined truths. They are not subject to debate. So those things are dogma. For example, the fact that God is immortal is dogmatic. It is dogma in Christianity. If somebody comes and tells you that if you have faith, you can kill God. The person is not a Christian. You see, when you move away from the things that are dogma, we can't call you a Christian because they are central to our faith. Hallelujah. That is why at doctrinal level, we are allowed to sometimes have different opinions. But the things that are dogmatic, the fact that Jesus Christ is God is dogma in Christianity. The moment you go away from it and you say Jesus is one of the prophets or Jesus was just a holy man or Jesus was just something, we can't even call you a Christian. Hallelujah. So the heretics are those who add to the scriptures and they teach doctrines that veer away from the central truths, the central on irrefutable truths about Christianity. So that is the heretic. Then number two, we have the charlatan. Everybody say the charlatan. Who is the charlatan? The charlatan is the one who uses Christianity as a means of personal enrichment. For the heretic, an example is in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read it quickly. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But there were false prophets also among those people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in.